As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Simply Safe, Miller High Life, The Great Courses Plus, Mint Mobile, HelloFresh, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In December of 1965, thousands of people across six states in Ontario, Canada, bore witness to a bright ball of fire in the sky that reportedly changed directions in flight before crashing in the small Pennsylvania town of Kecksburg. With that many witnesses, there can be no doubt that something indeed fell from the sky that night. The mystery only begins there, however. Volunteer firefighters from Kecksburg were concerned that an aircraft had crashed in their town, and they initiated standard operating procedures by attempting to organize and set up a search for survivors that might need aid. One of these men, a machinist named James Romansky, actually found the crash site. But what he saw there would change Kecksburg's history forever. It was not an airplane at all, but some kind of unidentifiable object with no recognizable control surfaces. In fact, it didn't look like something that could fly at all. Its shape resembled an acorn of all things, but it was quite large. Large enough to conceivably have an occupant within it, although Romansky could not see windows of any kind or point of egress. He also could not identify any panels or rivets on its surface. But Mr. Romansky did see something else. There appeared to be some kind of writing along the protruding edge of the acorn's hat, for lack of a better descriptor. Upon closer inspection, he realized that it was not English, and as far as he could tell, any type of known language. He spent his entire life looking for symbols similar to what he saw that day, to no avail. The closest connection he was ever able to make was to Egyptian hieroglyphs, a red flag for skeptics these days. But this was 30 years before Graham Hancock published his controversial book, The Fingerprints of the Gods, and 45 years before the first episode of the show skeptics loved to mock, Ancient Aliens. But the characters on the outside of the craft that crashed at Kecksburg are only part of this legendary mystery, and perhaps an inadvertent red herring. The plot of the story thickens when plainclothes men dressed in trench coats show up, followed closely by armed men in uniforms, using weapons to reinforce the idea that it was time to leave the crash site and not come back. Maybe it never happened, but if it didn't, what did many, including local resident Dean Campbell, see being hauled out of town on the back of a flatbed truck that night? Mr. Campbell worked at Bombardier Transportation for decades, one would think his powers of observation were trustworthy in this case. But it's never about one person's experience. It's about the most scientific collection of data you can muster in a case like this. Tonight, 
We're sitting down to talk to one of the preeminent UFO and anomaly researchers in the United States, Stan Gordon. Mr. Gordon has been studying the Kecksburg incident since he was a teenager and has appeared numerous times on Coast to Coast to talk about his experiences and knowledge. And tonight, he's here to talk to you. And he brought along his friend, volunteer firefighter Ron Struble, a witness to the events, to tell his side of the story as well. Stan believes there's a whole lot more to this legend that meets the eye. And after you hear him and Ron speak about it, you might too. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is legendary UFO researcher Stan Gordon. Two men come down in trench coats, and they look at the object, they look at the fireman, and they yell out and say, this area is now quarantined, and they made the fireman leave the area. And right behind them are soldiers walking down through the woods behind the two men in the trench coats. Join us tonight as we revisit and refresh our lost Kecksburg incident episode. And we're back. And hello, I am all color Sam. Wow. Uh, I got to admit, that sounds amazing. That's probably your best impression yet. Just a quick question. Is that colors with a C-O-L-O-R-S or is it colors C-O-L-O-U-R-S? Which way are you spelling it, Sam? Well, he, he's British, right? Oh, it's yeah. British, right. So it has the U in there. <laughs> C-O-L-O-U-R-S. Yeah, and I, you know, I had a friend from Surrey and they uh, they, they have rather posh accents in the south of England. So I thought, uh, well, he'd be British, right? Wait, what is the point behind this? <laughs> you know, I wanted Ryan to do the treatment on the opening quote for oh, the last episode yes. where I, I say that, but it just sounds like idiotic old me. <laughs> Without any flair. And then I then I heard the episode after he'd done the, the audio treatment. I was like, wow, that's really cool. I oh, I should have had him do that for this. So I forgot. So I thought, like, why not do it now? Uh, it's one and of my favorite back. things. Ryan McCullough, he's our sound designer. It's one of my favorite things he's ever done was the voice treatment for Sam, the Sandown Clown. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I, I don't blame you for wanting to hear yourself that way. I'd like to hear myself that way, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we had Sam's uh, little microphone device with the flex. Yes. With a white flex on the it. Flex. Like your son had that little voice box thing that would uh, change your voice oh, and yeah. do funny yeah, kind yeah. of things. Paul Appel and, got that for him. Yeah, you could loop your voice. I think it does different things. Like if he had Sam's device, you could have all kinds of crazy voices on that. It would be fun. Yeah. And very scary for a lot of people, too. <laughs> well, folks, tonight we are doubling back on a show that we did a long time ago. It's a story we covered once before. More on that in a minute. But we did just quickly want to thank everyone again for continuing to support our sponsors when you're able to. Yes, thank you so, so much. You know, we we know not everyone is in a great position right now. So those of you that are able to do that, we are so sincerely appreciative and grateful. That we are. So uh, tonight's show is about the somewhat infamous Kecksburg incident. Infamous? This is famous worldwide, my friend, as one of the biggest UFO stories in the world. And I didn't realize that when we we covered it. Certainly we'd heard that story, that we'd heard the name Kexper before in our travels before we did the podcast and all that. It was around the time when uh, we were just small children and it, it had happened. But I didn't realize how much of a significant case this was. And, and really, since we did it and how much people have been talking about it. And it's certainly famous in the Astonishing Legends world as the only show we've ever removed 
from our back catalog. Yeah, so about that, I feel like I should probably explain that a little bit. <laughs> what mean, about we've, that? We, we've answered a few emails about it, but here's hmm. the big picture. Originally, our show on Kexburg was episode 61. We're now at 184, so that tells you how far back it was. It, it originally dropped back on February 11th of 2017. And for that show, we did our regular research, and we sought out an expert guest to have on the show. His name is John Ventry, and he is the former state director for MUFON in Pennsylvania. He had a lot of knowledge about Kecksburg, and he came on the show, and uh, we interviewed him for quite a while, and that show stayed up for 14 months. It was well over a year, so all the OGAL listeners have heard <laughs> it. <laughs> Forrest, didn't you tell me that you heard, uh, since we took it down, there was a bootleg of it floating around <laughs> on the internet somewhere? <laughs> I think I saw people talking about it on our subreddit. Mm. For astonishing legends and it was just somebody like hey anybody know whatever happened to that thing because again if you joined the podcast just a couple of years ago it's just uh, an empty blank spot on the web page yeah. i think and yeah, and, yeah. and it's and when you look at the rss feed scott you don't even see a listing for it right there's not like a a, a number in a blank it's just not there right so yeah i don't think a it's number? there i don't think it's there yeah yeah so people were asking like hey what happened to that and then people were like i got a bootleg of that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> when it comes out, of course, you can download it. Uh, there's ways to capture the audio or rip it, as the as the yeah. Kids but it's say. gone now. I mean, it's like you'd yeah. have to have had old, one of the old versions of it and, and done that. But you know, whatever. It's it, it was yeah. up for 14 months, and <laughs> uh-huh. unfortunately, after those 14 months, Mr. Ventry actually made a Facebook post. Uh, this was around April of 2018, I think. Two and a half years ago, this is not a recent event. This has nothing to do with recent events, by the way. I I just Mm -hmm. want to say this was a while back. And uh, his posting on Facebook was quite plainly a racist rant. And, of course, the views of our guests never reflect the views of the show. But prior to that posting on Facebook, we had no hint of Mr. Ventry's positions on anything beyond UFOs. Yeah, absolutely. I want to make it clear here that Mr. Ventry never said anything offensive during the interview that aired. Uh, he said a lot of things that people didn't buy, certainly having to do with UFOs and, and out there ideas, but he was expressing those of, you know, that's the current thinking on UFOs and some of the attitudes. But yes, he he didn't say anything offensive. We certainly wouldn't air that. Yeah, and once he made that posting on Facebook in an effort to maintain integrity and represent our own internal values for Astonishing Legends, we decided to take that episode down. There's actually a Newsweek article that goes into much greater detail about Mr. Ventry's journey that involves our very own favorite mad scientist, Chris Cogswell. Chris is a founding member of the Astonishing Research Corps and also has a wonderful podcast of his own that we've mentioned many times before on the show, although it's been too long since the last time we brought it up. It's called the Mad Scientist Podcast. And to Chris's credit, once he found out about Mr. Ventry's Facebook post and the fact that MUFON had not parted ways with him yet, Chris Cogswell left MUFON, and he had recently just signed up to help them corral data and do a proper scientific analysis of it. And with a PhD in chemical engineering, the handsome and charming Mr. Cogswell, uh, (laughs) he he told me to put that in there, but I agree. (laughs) It's still true. He, He was very excited about the gig and most certainly the best man for the job. Honestly, he really was. This would have been a monumentally cool thing to take this guy and put him in there to uh, coalesce and evaluate all the data that MUFON had. I can't imagine anything better than having him in that position because he has a scientific mind. And while reasonably skeptical, he's also open 
And that's what's really cool about him. And that's why he's in our research core. But he also has the, the Mad Scientist pod, which talks about yeah. why things don't make sense. And that's why he would have been perfect for that position. But after all that went down, as, as excited as he was, his integrity was more important to him. And he decided to take a stand and uh, step away from MUFON. Well, in the intervening two years, a ton of people have emailed us saying and asking, where is the Kexberg show? You know, we had always planned to bring it back at some point, but just maintaining our regular production pipeline was pretty daunting. So it took a long time to get back around to it. And in the meantime, I think we had answered some uh, people's questions. So there will be more than a few questions on that original webpage asking where it is. And we yeah. would answer them from time to time. Like, yeah, we're working on it. We're getting to it. Yeah, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to post this one. We're going to disappear that original page. No one will <laughs> ever know this happened. Really? I Well, we're going to have to discuss that. Yeah. I had big, weird plans for it. But anyway, <laughs> that said, tonight's show is a wonderful revision to that original episode because tonight... Tonight, we have one of the most revered UFO researchers in the world, Stan Gordon. Stan Gordon's life is a movie waiting to be made. He has a background in radio communications and electronics, working in advanced consumer electronics sales for over 40 years. Now, Stan's lived in Greensburg, 20 minutes from Kecksburg, his entire life. Mr. Gordon founded the Westmoreland County UFO Study Group, the first of three volunteer research groups he established to investigate UFO sightings and other anomalies in 1970. And he's written several books, which we have links to in the show notes, and most notably produced an award-winning 1998 documentary called Kexburg, The Untold Story. That documentary is just an amazing thing to watch. Yes, it was 1998, and you can tell that when you watch it. But I love the look of that, too. No, I love it, too. And and, and for researchers like us, it's a goldmine. Because Mr. Gordon sat down with every living eyewitness to the Kecksburg incident he could find and not only interviewed them, but committed it to the film, preserving it forever. Many of these people have since passed, and we'll be the first to tell you having them on record is priceless. And if you want to support Stan, you can purchase his books and DVDs at StanGordon.info, and we have that link in the show notes as well. Yeah, it's really a priceless testament to a monumental uh, event. And my other favorite thing that Mr. Gordon did was establish a radio network that allowed his field investigators to communicate and deploy rapidly when there was an incident. He was truly ahead of his time, and he continues to collect and analyze data on not only UFOs, but all kinds of anomalies to the highest standards. So we're really thrilled to have him here with us tonight. On top of that, when we contacted him to come on for this episode, he had some ideas about how to broaden its scope, and he connected us with one of the original witnesses to the Kecksburg incident, Ron Struble. Mr. Struble is a volunteer fireman in Kecksburg, and also now the president and chairman of the UFO Festival Committee, which manages the festival for Kecksburg every year. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to attend one year, but unfortunately, due to the coronavirus, they had to cancel the festival this year. But we did speak with Mr. Struble just tonight as we were about to record this, and he assured us that it would be back at full force in 2021 towards the end of July. Tonight's show is about an amazing, astonishing legend, and both Stan Gordon and Ron Struble gave us so much of their time to bring it to you in an interesting way, which is why we wanted to mention that the annual UFO Festival, which has been canceled, is a major source of revenue for the volunteer fire department there. And not having it this year is probably going to be a big blow to their bottom line. 
Oh, indeed. You know, volunteer firemen all over the country are supported by various means, including some local taxes, but mostly fundraising. And the reality is budgets are a struggle for them. So if you're a fan of tonight's story and want to help out a department that's taking a hit, thanks to the coronavirus, head over to KecksburgVFD.com and check out the UFO store. And they have some great merch there and all sales of that go to help support them until next year when the festival comes back. That's Kecksburg, K-E-C-K-S-B-U-R-G, V-F-D.com, and then hit the UFO store. And for what it's worth, Forrest, and I didn't put this in our outline because I wanted to surprise you with this, I want to go ahead and commit to the 2021 UFO Festival. I'm going to go in person. Oh, my goodness. When it comes next year, will you join me? I'm asking you on the air. If it's safe to fly without a hazmat suit, will you? Because I can drive. It's easy for me. Oh, I've already like, flown when it wasn't all that safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm ready to go. Let's yeah. go. Let's go all to the right. festival next year, 2021. Oh, heck yeah. I'm absolutely down for this. I'm already going to chill the beverages and charge the batteries. How's that? That sounds good. So if, if anybody uh, can make it there to Kecksburg next year for the festival, it's going to be in late July. We will see you there. Uh, in the meanwhile, visit the website we mentioned. We'll have links to it in the show notes. Anyway, switching gears, let's get set up for tonight. As we said, tonight's show is a first for us. It's a combination of an older show and a redux. Uh, So I went back and listened to the old show, and I tried to decide what we might keep from there. It seemed fun to pull some of our original setup for this series and replay it tonight. It's kind of a weird throwback, right? This is pre-Sally House, pre Patterson Gimlin film. Yeah, it's pre a lot of things. And uh, guess what was next right after this episode when it ran back in 2017? Forrest, I'm putting you on the Uh, spot. This is not in the outline. I want you to answer this question. What do you think came right after episode 61, the original airing of Kecksburg? It's probably not the the Nazi bell. (gasps) What? How could you possibly know that? That's the answer. Yes. Oh. It's the Nazi. I, you know the only you know the reason I'm thinking possibly, about that. I was so convinced I was going to stump you just. Now. <laughs> I think I didn't. Oh, we talk about this already. I'm We've just forgotten in my own mental capacity. <laughs> Maybe I don't no, know. No, you know what? Here's okay. Here's a little insight for the listeners. Sometimes we'll decide on the next topic based solely on the geometric shape of the next thing to talk about. So, <laughs> <laughs> acorn. Well, no, it fits. no, that's not connected. what we did. Please do not put that out there. That's not I, what I we think, did. Uh, We're picking so, topics on the shapes of the crafts or <laughs> unknown objects. Well, if you remember correctly, after we were going to do Lady Wonder, the psychic horse, we were going to do a story on a on a psychic llama. I don't remember psychic llama <laughs> angle. No, no seriously <laughs> though, uh, the idea. <laughs> well, they're, I'm just saying, uh, you know, similar shapes, but we do sometimes try to lead one story into yes. another if they fit. So here you had two bell-shaped types of objects with amazing properties, or not if you don't believe in that stuff. And obviously uh, Wikipedia doesn't because they uh, they scrub the page. Yes. Nothing to see here, folks, and uh, just told us uh, we would be stupid for even looking at this stuff. So it's just comically comic now. But I remember at the time, both of these had pretty interesting entries. So that's the only reason I can think of is that uh, why we followed one with the other is that uh, it was largely to do with a possibly anomalous object of similar shape. But obviously the Nazi bell had far greater weird powers or we don't know. We don't know what they did uh, with that, but there definitely is a connection between the two, as you'll hear tonight in the interview. 
Anyway, so here we are again, and this is what we're going to do because we have no model for this. We're going to replay our original setup for the Kexberg episode tonight. So you're going to hear us from a few years ago setting up this story. But (laughs) then we're going to break into our recent interview with Stan Gordon and Ron Struble. Stan has a pretty amazing overview about all this, and on top of that, he believes it's connected to a much bigger picture, which I personally always look for and love, which is why we're going to be back next week with an additional discussion with him about how that bigger picture is more connected to this region than you might think. All right, so we're about to roll our original two-and-a-half-year-old introduction to the Kecksburg incident. Wow, this introduction right here feels like it's two and a half years I old. I know, yeah, it does. It was two and a half years to record it, but <laughs> it, this is going to be just a little disjointed here and there because we cut some things out. But after it's done, we'll come back to let you know we're rolling into our interview with Stan Gordon and Ronnie Struble. Yeah, get ready because this is old school AL here. And let's set that way back machine for February of 2017. That sound like uh, Mr. Peabody? Yeah. Super, a whole lot. Okay. Really sounded like him. <laughs> all right. Okay, so I know this is episode 61 and all, but this is kind of officially only our second UFO episode. Are you talking about totally just about the UFO? Yeah, devoted to a UFO. Okay. It's, it's the Delphos ring in this one. Yeah, but see, now we have Fermi Paradox that dealt with UFOs. Lake yes. Baikal, where we had UFOs coming out of it. Yes. Skinwalker Ranch, where they were hovering about. Indrid Cold. Indrid Cold. Yeah. yeah. We've talked around it, but I think this is the first one where there's an item <laughs> other than just a ring yeah. or a, a blob of greasy whatnot on the ground, unfortunately. Yeah. It's actually a device that was seen and crashed. That's and, the yeah. thing about that. You remember in Delphos, you remember Snowball, the dog? Of course. Which <laughs> Marie had given a super hard time in I don't the research know why. core. Still don't know why. Well, she felt like Snowball didn't really do his job oh, to protect everyone. But hey, it's every beast for themselves. We later concluded that Snowball had it figured out after all the dog disappearances at Skinwalker. Yeah, don't rush into the glowing orb, uh, whatever it is, with the electrical sparks coming out of it. This story doesn't have any dogs, though, but you know what it could have used? What's that? A giant squirrel. Oh, uh, <laughs> all right. I, okay, I see where you're going with this. Isn't because it? this craft was apparently shaped like a giant acorn. <laughs> that's the main story. And if you Google Kexberg, that's probably the one image you're going to see. And I got to say, it looks a little like the poop emoji. <laughs> it's a little, well, with just one soft serve swirl on there. Yeah. Right. Minus the little happy eyes. The happy eyes. But it, you're right. Exactly like an acorn with the, uh, what do you call that? The cupola? The, the cupule. The one main report is that it's acorn shaped. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. No. Let's set the stage first. This was December 9th. 1965. Yes. Not even six days before this, the Beatles released their sixth album, Rubber Soul, which contained the tracks Drive My Car and Nowhere Man. And The Who released their first album that same day, My Generation, with the track, you know, well, you know, My Generation. But just a few days later, on December 9th, something even more significant happened. I know what you're talking about. It's a Charlie Brown Christmas premiere. That's right. The Charlie Brown Christmas (laughs) premiered on December 9th, 1965 for the first time. That's a big deal, right? It's 51 years old, yeah. Yeah, but you know what else happened on December 9th, that very same day that Charlie Brown Christmas premiered? I can't imagine anything more significant, to me personally anyway. Well, a giant acorn fell out of the sky. (laughs) 
<laughs> the Kecksburg incident took place on that day. Aha, uh-huh, right. But didn't exactly fall, right? That thing was streaking at quite a speed. It did. It created a sonic boom. Yeah. This is probably the second most famous UFO story in U.S. history. And tonight, let's talk about what happened. So as we said, on December 9th, 1965, a flaming object traveling across the sky in a southeasterly direction was reported by witnesses from Ontario, Canada, and six states in the United States. It was seen over Detroit and eventually Pittsburgh, creating sonic booms along the way as it descended and dropped fiery bits of metal that actually started some grass fires. After making what appeared to be a partially controlled descent, although it was clearly in trouble, it finally crash-landed outside of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Now, thousands of witnesses saw this thing in the sky. There was no question it was there, and dozens saw it on the ground after it landed. The U.S. Army reported that it was a meteor, And other government officials who arrived to search the area said nothing was found. The only problem with all this is that the locals had gotten there first, a lot of them, and they all saw it. Yeah. It wasn't a figment of anybody's imagination. No, and they placed calls, too, to the fire department and the local news. Right, and that's why the fire department was out there. The volunteer firemen all turned up out there, and we're going to talk about that in a second. So witnesses said this thing was 8 to 10 feet by 12 feet. It was a pretty good size, big enough for a man to walk around inside of. Stand up, yes. Yeah, to stand up inside of. I don't know about walk around. And they said there wasn't really a crater. There was a trench, but it didn't do as much damage as you might expect from something that was seen traveling so far on a crash course. Yeah, and there's reasons for that, though, that they believe because of what was described as the flight trajectory, intelligent operation. That's another term that Scott and I love, along with non-ballistic motion. Non-ballistic motion. Right, or flight path. And it did come in at an angle, and it created quite a trench, and it broke some trees in half. Yeah, broke a bunch of trees in half, which they went back and examined years later and were able to determine where it had landed, other people who had yeah, looking, gotten there after Right, the looking at the rings. And this is a case, as Scott said, has been studied for 51 years to this day. And people have really checked into it with witness interviews and as much documentation as they could. However, they've come up against one huge barrier, and that's been the United States government. Yeah, and this is actually just six years after the Delphos incident, which ah, we reported on. Right. Not too far apart. One of the witnesses that showed up was a local volunteer fireman named James Romansky, and he was one of the first guys to see it. He had been out doing a grid search because all the residents thought a plane had gone down, right. and there needed to be a search for any possible survivors, right. or and these search are, and rescue. These are little towns, so they have volunteer fire departments, so they call up people to get rouse them from whatever they're doing at the moment to go check it out, and there's several groups of them. So James Romansky was with one group of firefighters. They all had walkie-talkies on them, and they're communicating, so I think another group said, hey, we found it. Come on over. They gave them the directions. James goes zipping on over there. Right. So when he gets there, he sees this giant acorn-shaped craft in the ground. And one of the first things he noticed about it was that it was virtually seamless. And he had an expertise and background in metalworking. And he was of the opinion that it looked as though it had just been poured into a mold, that there were no rivets or seams of any kind on it. And to him, it seemed like something that we weren't capable of producing. Mankind was not currently capable of producing. Yeah, because imagine something that big has to be put together in parts. It's not usually just fabricated in one piece. And that was his assessment because he was a machinist. He understood how large things like that are made. And that was... That was his guess from just looking at it. And the other thing he noticed was something extremely unusual on the rim of the bumper part of the acorn. 
there was this strange writing and symbols that he ultimately became obsessed with and spent years trying to find through research. And the closest comparison that he ever found was Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yes, according to James, that's what it resembled. That was these strange symbols that did not look like any kind of normal English or you know writing that he could recognize. So that was his claim. And when he says bumper, that's a bell shape, shall we say, part of the acorn where it's rounded at the one end and at the other is that cap. And we're talking about the bulbous part of the cap that protrudes around the, you could say the belt line or the skirt area of this bell shape. He wasn't the only one to see this stuff. There were other people that reported similar features on the craft. And even though the size estimations varied, which you're going to hear me talk about here in a little bit, but overall, everyone said it looked the same way. Before too long, military officials showed up, cordoned off the entire area, chasing everyone away. Some looky-loos were even turned back at gunpoint. Well, if you ain't moving fast enough, you're going to get a barrel pointed at you. But within the hour, they said that there was military personnel there, two dozen. That's right. Soldiers. A lot of men had been mobilized fairly quickly and got there sooner than they should have been able to get there had they left the closest base. That's another important thing. So they were either already underway or they were deployed from a secret location. Uh So that's something to think about as well. Eventually, eyewitnesses reported that the craft, the Acorn, was moved to the back of a low-boy flatbed trailer on a large truck and hauled away under a tarp at about 1 or 2 in the morning, never to be seen again. Mm -hmm. Now, other folks said they saw men in white hazmat suits with NASA badging enter the crash site with a box of some kind that it took all four of them to carry, a large box, and then they exited with the same box, which also was taken away. So the question is, what happened at Kecksburg on that December morning? It's been over 50 years now, as Forrest said a minute ago, and many theories have been suggested, including a meteor, a failed Russian spacecraft, the Nazi bell, or even secret spy tech launched by the U.S. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Nazi bell is, this is a top-secret Nazi weapon that was under development at the time the Nazis lost the war that was rumored to have magical powers. And like I always say, someday we need to do an episode on the Nazi bell. And you know what I think? I think it's going to be our next episode. We've had a few people write into us suggesting it. And of course, like everyone else, because if you're into this kind of stuff, you hear about it generally around this, you know, within a few years of each other. But we had heard about it ourselves years ago. And it's a big story that's out there because it could be a bunch of different things. It could be a weapon, maybe of some kind. It could be a power source or it could be a time machine. Again, it's top secret. And the story of this actual incident, which we've sort of abbreviated here because it's super easy to find online. You can look it up and see what happened. It's easy to find. But the inside knowledge of the hunt for the truth is a lot more elusive. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Karina from the Alps. And when I'm not teaching our cows how to abduct aliens, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Wow, that seems like a million years ago, but it was only two and a half. <laughs> yeah, just just a reminder for those of you working out and doing laundry while you're listening. Ooh. Our next episode is not the Nazi Bell. We did that two oh. and a half years ago, right after that first show originally ran. But we, we just wanted to run that. I don't know. I just felt nostalgic about it a little bit. I wanted to uh. run that original <laughs> introduction to Kexberg because that's where our heads were at back when we did that. Even True. though now we're we're getting this new interview, I thought it was interesting how we described things back then. Yeah, not very well and uh, <laughs> not much better now. But I will say our minds were in a different headspace along this journey. And where we are now is we have a little bit more information and uh, context, I think, is the bigger word here, the better word context and where to place these types of stories. So it was a weird one, certainly. But I really kind of do want to do an update on the Nazi bell. We got to get back to uh, that story because there is maybe a really much, much bigger picture going on here. I don't want to get us in trouble, but I also want to find out what it is. Well, anyway, that was our setup for this story. And although we originally covered much more of the incident, once we talked to Stan Gordon and Ron Struble, that was no longer necessary. This information that you're going to get from this interview that we're running tonight is going to fill in all the blanks. Just be warned <laughs> with the beginning of this interview. Mm. We're diving right in here with Stan Gordon. Get ready. Yeah, this is going to be Stan hitting the ground running, which fits his personality. So let's do it. My interest in the Kecksburg case uh, began on the evening of December 9, 1965. And how I got involved, I was tuned into. KDK Radio in Pittsburgh, and they had a, a talk radio show. And uh, the name of the show was Contact, and the host of the show was the late Mike Levine. And the reason I was listening to that program that night, he had a special guest on whose name was Frank Edwards that some of you might recognize. And he was a journalist who would written some books on unusual incidents. So I was tuned in to listen to see what Frank Edwards had to say. And interestingly, Almost the entire show is focusing on this now-breaking news story of this brilliant fireball, this fiery object that was seen by apparently many, many people from Ontario, Canada, over Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And uh, they were interviewing eyewitnesses. They were reading the wire news stories that were just breaking. They were interviewing uh, reporters. And it was a fascinating time to listen to these accounts. And as the evening continued on and more news broadcasts are coming across the air, there was actually a, a break-in on Pittsburgh TV, on KDK TV, with a reporter 
talking about that whatever the object was, it apparently fell into a wood ravine near the little village of Kecksburg in Westmoreland County, and that the military was now arriving in the area to search for an unidentified flying object. I was 16 years old when this happened. I began to document the information as it's breaking on the news. I remember running back and forth from the living room into the other room from the black and white console TV to the radios trying to get the latest reports all evening. I wasn't driving yet. They had no way to get out to the area. So I was listening to all these uh, interesting reports. And the next day, um, the first thing I did, I was hoping, I said, P, I hope this makes the news. So I ran to the local newsstand and picked up all the local newspapers. And here it's the headlines in all the local papers. I had made the national news. But there were very few names in the paper. So I tried to begin to make some contact with people out around the Kecksburg area, which I really had very little contact around there. And I gathered what information I could, but over a period of weeks and months and years, I began to get information from various sources, from neighbors of people who were involved, from friends and relatives of people. I would get anonymous tips at times. And over many years, I began to track down hundreds of people who were involved in the incident. And uh, now, after so many years later, I even on occasion, I'll have somebody come up to me and tell me that they were involved, they had relatives who were involved, and on, on occasion, even in recent years, some of the speaking events that I did, I would have some uh, older folks come up, probably the 70s or 80s, and not even excitedly just telling me that they just wanted to tell me that they knew I was interested in the thing that happened in Kecksburg, and they were youngsters at that time, but they were there that night, and uh, so many of them had interesting stories to tell. So it's hard to say how many people might still be around today. Unfortunately, so many of key witnesses have passed away. Many other witnesses are elderly now. They're in poor health. But there are still other people around who remember well what happened that night in 1965. Let's talk a little bit about that just briefly. This craft was initially sighted over Ontario, and then everyone talks about how it seemed to be turning or changing course on its descent. Also, its descent was slow. It was exhibiting non-ballistic motion, and it wasn't going fast enough to be something that was necessarily out of control, right? And there's been some people are saying that they felt like the course changes were to avoid populated areas. What's your take on that? I can only tell you, I've interviewed multitudes of witnesses who saw it. A lot of my focus has been on the activity within miles of where the object fell, what happened at Kecksburg that night. And there were so many people involved. And again, not everybody involved in the incident were from Kecksburg. There were people from throughout western Pennsylvania, the greater Pittsburgh area, throughout Westmoreland County and other areas who saw the object or later, after hearing the radio and TV broadcast, began to descend on that small community to try to get a look at the object down in the woods. But multitudes of people I interviewed who were in different locations, and some people saw it at different angles. Some people saw it further away. Some people had it pass directly over top of their head at a very low altitude. So different people got different views of this thing as it's coming down. But many, many people told me how they see this object. It's moving relatively slowly. Several people mentioned that, for example, as they saw it moving towards them overhead, it was moving at the speed of a small aircraft on approach to an airport, is how some people described it. And the object came in over Greensburg. And this is where Ron can tell you his story. And a lot of this information we did not know at the time. It took years and years as I'm finding different people 
and I'm interviewing these people, and so much of the information was not out there for people to really know a lot about other people's details. But over the years, so many independent people gave me the same details or were able to confirm other people's reports. Even today, the high percentage of people I interviewed have never gone public. But anyhow, this object came in over the greater Greensburg area. From what I learned, it moved out roughly towards Route 30 East. It makes a turn to the south. And it's seen by people in the small communities such as uh, Pleasant Unity, and it goes down towards uh, Norvelt and over Mammoth and out the mountains of Laurelville. That's where we had indication this thing kind of hesitated over the mountain, made a turn, turned back towards Kecksburg, made another turn, and went down into the Widow Ravine. And some of the local people who saw it go down that afternoon said it did not come down at a high rate of speed like you would have with a reentry of a meteor, for example, or space uh, craft reentry. But they said it came down almost like it made a controlled landing. And moments later, there was a column of kind of a grayish-blue smoke that went up, but it dissipated very quickly. So what, I, what we did not know at the time, and again, over many years, I found some of these people. And I had reports from other people who had relatives or friends that also reportedly went down as well, who were later deceased by the time I heard about it. But I found out that some of the locals, after seeing the object they sent from the sky, went down into the Widow Ravine. And that's when they came across this large, metallic, acorn-shaped object semi-buried in the ground. So best estimates are that the object was approximately 10 to 12 feet in length, about 8 to 10 feet in diameter shaped like a large metallic acorn, kind of an off-gold bronze color. But what was very interesting is that this object was one solid piece of metal, according to witnesses. And we'll talk about it. I'm sure Jim Romanski was a young volunteer fireman. He was not from Kecksburg. He was another volunteer fireman who had responded to the Kecksburg area when an information came out to the fire department that there was a possible downed aircraft in the area. So the firemen were going out to look for a possible downed aircraft in the large wooded area. But anyhow, Jim Romanski was, went to the Kecksburg area, as other firemen did. He said most of the fellows, people there, he didn't know who they were. They were from other departments. They were going to set up a grid search to search as large wooded area. They had a map, and he remembered that they put the different firemen in some trucks, and they left them off at different locations along the base of the um, woods, uh, of the fields that went up into the woods. They had walkie-talkies with them, and Jim told me, he said, they're on the radios. They weren't out there very long when they heard a radio call that another team had come across uh, what had fallen. So Jim and his small group hurried over to that location, and that's when they come across this large metallic object semi-buried in the ground. But Jim, most of his life, was a machinist. He was familiar with metal. And I remember what he always told me from the first time I met him, which is an interesting story in itself. He said, it looked like somebody took liquid metal and poured it into an acorn-shaped mold. There was no weld marks, no seams, no rivet marks on it. It's one solid piece of metal. But at the raised-up back, like you would have on the acorn, he said there appeared to be actually symbols raised off the surface. And luckily, because of his background, he was somewhat familiar with uh, Cyrillic, or uh, Soviet at that time, and he said that was not what it was. And he tried to remember years later when I met him in 1987. 
that these markings, they look more like some type of ancient symbols. And I know over the years you told me how he, he, he went to libraries, and from his memory, he tried to look up some of the ancient writings. And he said the closest thing he could recall was it looked similar to ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. But the rest of his story is interesting, too, and, and there's a lot more. We could talk for hours just about the witness accounts. But Jim said they're down there. Nobody's touching this thing. The, the few firemen are walking around this thing, and they realize this is not a meteorite. This is not an aircraft they're familiar with. They had never seen it like it before. And two men come down in trench coats, and they look at the object. They look at the firemen, and they yell out and say, this area is now quarantined and they made the firemen leave the area. And right behind them are soldiers walking down through the woods behind the two men in the trench coats. And Jim said they were so close to each other, they aimed their flashlight beams at each other as they're moving around and leaving the area. And when they found their way back to Kecksburg, he wasn't very familiar with that area, he wasn't from there, they went down to the truck station where he and other people confirmed that there was a lot of military activity military trucks parked down there. They were carrying radios and other equipment into the little truck station, which uh, Ron can tell you about. And uh, apparently they were setting up as a temporary command post for what we are told. So that's just one part of this amazing story. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Okay, so Ron, where do you come into this picture? You, were you at a volunteer firefighter at the fire department when, this, when the night this happened? Well, let me start in the beginning because I got 44 years as a firefighter and <laughs> EMT still active with uh, Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department. But in 1965, I was not a fireman or an EMT. In uh, August the 3rd, 1963, we got married and we moved to 429 Oakland Avenue in Greensburg. So it's kind of ironic. We was about two blocks from a, a fire station in Greensburg. And, and uh, all of a sudden, we heard it on the KDKA about this object. There's a streak in the sky or a plane going down. So we come out of our apartment at that time and I looked in the sky and I seen the orange rooster tail of this object flying through the sky. Couldn't see the object, but I definitely could see the rooster tail. So the fact that uh, I was born and raised in Welly Town, which is only two miles from Kecksburg. So the wife and I jumped in the car and we went out to the scene of the incident, which at that time was Snively and Trice Road, but it's now called Snively and Meteor Road. Meteor, yeah. We got to the intersection of Meteor and Snively right now. And I met some of the firemen and one of the firemen that uh, I met was Don Hooter, and he was one of the, the older firemen in the company. Met a guy by the name of Jim Musgrove, and we, we sat around there and talked, and we could see action in the hall and see the military, whatever they were doing down there, because at that time, it was nothing but a, a big open field going down into the hall. So we didn't really think too much of it at the time because the fire police was keeping us from going down in. You know, we just, we figured it was a plane went down or whatever, because you didn't have communications like you do today. I mean, if we had what we have now back then, it'd be a different story. But, you know, you could hear some people talking and some people walking around down there, but that was about it from our vantage point. 
But there's a lot that I can add to the story that since then, I got in the company in 1975, and it's just unbelievable what I've learned over those years. Well, let's hear about it. We know that the fire department, it's almost like has become an unofficial or maybe even an official uh, repository of information that's been collected over the years, which is, has been good because it helps out the fire department. But I would imagine that in the course of gathering all that information, there's been a lot of stuff that a lot of people haven't heard about. 1975, I got in the company. And of course, starting as a, a youngie in the fire department, you know, you have to earn your yes your uh, rights in the company because you had a lot of older firemen there were staunch in their beliefs. And so I don't know, it was approximately, Stan, you'll have to help me with this. About 16 or 18 years ago, I met Stan. And we started the fire company. I mean, I started a UFO store. I was fire chief and rescue chief and all that good stuff for years. But I just was interested in this after meeting Stan and talking to him about it. And then once I started this store, it was just unbelievable. I have a logbook that I have in our store, the Kicksburg VFD UFO store. And people that would come from every state in the union and sign that logbook saying that they seen the streak in the sky or they had a relative that was there. And I've been with Stan on some of the interviews, and it's just amazing. Back then, people... They just didn't want to share the information because they was afraid to be labeled as something else. And it was hard to get information from them. But recently, in the last 10 years, 15 years, a lot of people were coming forward saying, yeah, my relative was there, my dad was there, my mom was there. And I've had so many interesting calls like Stan, uh, one that really sticks in my mind right now. I had a district attorney from Ohio call me, and he says, Ron, you don't know me and I don't know you, but I want to tell you, don't give up on that incident because it is real. And that's all he would tell me. And uh, Stan has, has uncovered a lot of information with people he interviewed over the years. And I wasn't in the beginning. I wasn't a staunch believer that something really happened there. But after realizing where this thing went down, and if you weren't just right there at that point in time to see this object being flatbedded out of town, you would never see it. Within a minute, it was gone. I worked for Bombardier, and when I retired in 2002, there was a guy by the name of Dean Campbell that I worked with for 25, 30 years come to my retirement party. He says, hey, Ron, you know that thing you keep talking about in Kecksburg? I said, yeah. He said, I'm here to tell you it did happen. So on the fourth anniversary of this incident, he come to our fire station and he interviewed with Stan on this incident and he testified that he's seen it going down through town on a flatbed trailer. Now, obviously it was covered up and nobody really knows what it was, but Knowing the geo of the area and the way the town is placed in this valley, if you were not on Clay Pike when this thing come down through town, within two minutes, it was gone. So I believe an incident did happen because me and the wife was there on Meteor Road and we did see the military down at all. So the other thing that really bugged me over the years was 
from 429 Oakland Avenue to Kecksburg, if you were slow in an automobile, maybe 15, 20 minutes. When we got out here, the military was already here. So how did the military get there so quick? And why did they get there so quick? I guess that's a question I have for either one of you, because that's something that stood out to me. And I think everybody, when you look at this story and the ensuing investigations into what might have happened, you come down to this question about whether or not that was because they were tracking it as it was inbound and before it hit the ground. And if they were tracking it, were they tracking it because, you know, as many people have speculated, it was they thought it was plausible that it was a terrestrial foreign made satellite or some kind of technology that we might want to get our hands on just for military reasons, or was it being tracked because it was unknown? And I've heard in your documentary, Stan, and in all the stuff we've consumed, I can't exactly remember where everything is at this point in terms of the statements, but I remember one was that, you know, everybody talks about Cosmos 96, but how it came down 13 hours earlier. Um, and then I somewhere I'd also heard that was the only object that day that anyone was expecting to come down out of the atmosphere officially was Cosmos 96, and that it had burned up prior and was of a different shape. We could spend days and days talking about all the information on this case, and officially, the object, whatever it was, was not being tracked on radar. However, over many, many years, I interviewed some sources who told me they were in a position to know whatever it was, it was being tracked over quite a distance. My feeling is that from information that I've heard over the years, I think it's very likely that some of the local units, you know, you got to remember 1965, it's Vietnam, and all over this area, there were National Guard armories. So there was a lot of personnel and a lot of equipment all through this area. And of course, we know that at least a small number of personnel involved in the search were members of the 662nd Radar Squadron, which was based at Oakdale, so that's right outside of Pittsburgh, not that far away. So that was a Army support facility, but the radar squadron was an Air Force unit. That was also the headquarters for the Missile Master. So that was also the main control center for the air defense system, the Nike air defense system around Pittsburgh at the time. So I, I believe, from what I was told, that this thing was probably being tracked, that probably some of the local units were advised of the situation. Over the years, different people I interviewed swore that within the hour after the object fell, they began to see a military presence in the area. Not a large presence like later in the evening, but they were seeing military personnel on jeeps, for example, riding around the area. And as the evening went on, more and more reports were coming in, and many, many people I interviewed reported seeing military personnel, Army and Air Force, uh, and many military vehicles coming into that small community of Kecksburg. People told me they saw groups of soldiers walking around and in, in down in that area. Back at that time, the only major facility down there was the Pepsi-Cola bottling plant. I think Ryan can verify that. I think it was a little store down there, but it's a very, very small community. And one witness, for example, his name was Mike Slater. He did go public. He was, a, I believe, a 14-year-old boy at the time. He was later an engineer. I've got to know him very well. He's done some uh, documentaries about this. But he and his young brother were sitting there on the steps by their house, which was just a few houses down from the Pepsi plant, right on the main drag there. And they're watching all these Army trucks and personnel coming into the area. And they're amazed at, what's the Army doing in Kecksburg? 
And as Mike told me, he said at one point, an army jeep with an officer and a driver pulled up and started talking to the boys about the reports of something fell around the, around the area. And the officer says, told me it's something you can do for your country. But the interesting thing that Ron had mentioned, the location where this thing fell down in the ravine, if you're not standing on that spot, you couldn't possibly see it from any of the roads around the area, from the overhang, from the high hill atop of Meteor Road, which looks over the whole Kecksburg area and the woods where the object fell, you would not have been able to see the object unless you were standing down there in the ravine. So the, these army trucks that came in originally, unless somebody took them down to the site, there's no way they would have known from anybody on the ground where this thing actually came down. They wouldn't be able to see it. And, again, many, many different accounts. Uh, I remember the late Jim Mays. Jim Mays was the first assistant chief of Kecksburg at the time. And Jim was the Kecksburg officer that was interviewed uh, by the local paper in the story the next day. Jim told me in many interviews we did that he was the one that organized the search when reports came of a possible downed aircraft in the area. At one point, he and another fireman, a state trooper, went to the top of the hill, top of what is now Meteor Road. I believe it was called Coons Lane back in those days. Ron can verify that. And they could see, like, this blue arcing down in the woods. And they wanted to get down to see what it was, but the police officer would not let them go down. And soon they began uh, later to organize a search, and so many people began to come into the area that night that the firemen and other authorities, state police and other authorities, began to shut the roads down around the general area where the object had fallen. And another account was the fact that apparently during the evening, a small group of military brass approached Jim and asked them to take him down on one of the four-wheel drive pumper trucks down to the woods to where the object reportedly fell. And over the years, I was able to interview some of those volunteer firemen who were on the truck. And I believe all these fellows are now deceased. And Ron w would have known all these fellows. And what I was told was they went down through the field towards the edge of the woods. The military made the firemen stop. The military guys continued down to the woods, and they made the firemen go back. So, again, that's just another historical account. I'd like to add, too, that, you know, that's one of the things that uh... – Stan pointed out there, whenever I got into company as a young guy, you know, I met these guys like Jim Bays, Robbie Bittner, Ed Myers, Harry Wilkins. Jim Bays and Robbie Bittner went to their deathbed stating that this did happen. And in fact, Mr. Bittner's son is still farming with us. And they were livid about the fact that the military was there and they pointed guns at them and asked them to leave. But their stories to me just made me more of a believer than anything, because why would a guy like Jim Mays or Mr. Bittner go to their deathbed not believing that it, it didn't happen? It happened. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Olivia, and this is Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. Are there people still disputing whether or not it happened? Because you guys seem fairly defensive about that. And like for me, I'm like, this happened. There's no question. I mean, when you look at the big picture, there's so many witnesses. And and, uh, Stan, man, I got to tell you, my hat's off to you because we've investigated a lot of stuff. And that uh, documentary you did, I, I don't know if it was 96 or 98 or whenever, getting all those folks on tape, that is just so, so valuable. And it's just, I'm so glad that you did that because it makes it so much harder for people to second guess what people saw and to get it uh, more contemporaneously with when it happened. Just my hat's off to you for that. But both, both me and Forrest is just, it's so great to be able to fall back on that stuff. But I mean, are there are there still people coming out saying this never happened, nothing happened? Thank you for the uh, description on the video. I did that to be able to document that for historical sake because I knew that so many of these people were not going to be around to tell their stories. And, of course, you know, I did a lot of documentaries on TV and radio over the years, and some witnesses are interviewed, and they had maybe a minute or two just to tell a bit of piece of their story. I wanted to give some of these people the time to go into great detail so they could document what happened. And again, many of the people on the documentary are now deceased. Others are in very poor health. And those are just the example of the hundreds of people I've interviewed. It was something to to get to know a lot of these people personally. And I have no doubt that the people I interviewed, those people were, were all telling the truth. And years ago, when this story was breaking nationally, when Unsolved Mysteries decided to do their season premiere on this case, and it had a huge, huge response. Within minutes after that show aired, I mean, the phone calls and emails reports coming in from all over the country was just amazing from people who used to live nearby or had relatives or were involved in it. I mean, there was all kind of tips coming in. It, w- it was just an amazing time. And through that, we got some great new information as well. But it was during that time was getting a lot of local publicity that there were some local people for their own different reasons, said that they were there, nothing happened, they saw nothing. And as I recall, I think a lot of the problem was that a lot of the local people out there were afraid that a lot of people from outside the area would come in and trespass on their property, and they didn't want people doing that, which I understand completely. So once it's all gone out, and and in more recent years, I, I think Juan will verify this, there's a huge public support for this case all through this area, all through Pennsylvania. There's just a huge public interest in it. It's very supportive. Ron has the UFO Festival every year. Unfortunately, this year was canceled because of the virus situation, but it's postponed to next year. And, I mean, thousands of people from all over the country come in for this thing. And and you get still find witnesses approach every once in a while as well for information. But I would say that you're always going to have people doubt any case, any report, and for various reasons. The one point that I, I keep bringing up, and I'm sure Ron remembers this as well, is the fact that if you see the geography of the way 
Kecksburg is laid out and where different activity occurred that night. If you weren't at that location at the time, you wouldn't have seen what was going on. So if you're down in the town, you're not seeing all the activity was taking place up on what we now called Meteor Road, on that bend of Meteor Road where hundreds of people apparently jammed that small country road that night. That's where you had lots of people. You had state police, you had fire equipment, you had military up there. But down on way on the opposite side of the woods was a little old farm lane. And that was closer to where the impact area was. And that's where we understand from some people who were up in that area, that's where most of the military activity was taking place. It was closer to the impact site. So the people who were up on the road, all they could see basically were lights in the field, lights in the woods, but they couldn't see what was going on. And so it all depended on where you were at what particular time that evening. Like uh, Stan was pointing out, the way the geo of the area is, it's in a valley, and there's a four-way intersection of, above the uh, Kecksburg Fire Hole. And if you were not on Clay Pike at that particular time, whenever that flatbed come down through town, you wouldn't have seen it. And, for example, if you was in the fire social club, you wouldn't have seen nothing. If you were not up at where Media Road is now, where the site was you wouldn't see all the activity because uh, it's a hollow and the two valleys had come together. And we know now that it come down Clay Pike. It come down from the ridge top down through Kecksburg and out through towards Norville. That's how it exited Kecksburg. But if you weren't there within that one or two minutes, you would have missed it. There were people that claimed that they didn't see nothing. And that's Rightfully so. They just weren't at the right place at the right time. Right. It's like being around the corner from something and not realizing it's happening. And then in in your mind, nothing happened just because you didn't lay eyes on it. And what was interesting, uh, Ron, I bet you remember this, when they were doing filming the special for the Sci-Fi Channel and they had the town hall meeting and we had, remember, the The huge crowd and all the locals people had been there, including some of the people that said nothing happened that night. And then some of them, as they're being interviewed, they came up with the fact that at least one of our members said, well, I saw Army trucks that night. So what are Army trucks doing in Kecksburg in in December 1965? Right. Were there multiple reports of multiple sonic booms being heard with some space apart, uh, or was that reported from different states? From what I recall, I mean, there there was some reports in Westmoreland County a couple reports of, of explosive sounds, but there are, I believe, other reports in other areas as well. Again, how that relates to this, it's hard to say. There are so many details, and there are some things we can document, but some things we just don't have enough information on to see how it relates. One other point is, you know, the multiple people saw this thing coming over, people saw it coming down, and people saw the object on the ground. Nobody reported seeing any parachutes. So that's an important thing. So you've got to remember, here's this large object moving relatively slowly. Looks like it's making almost a controlled descent. What we now know is it damaged trees and knocked trees down in the area. But other than that, the witnesses who saw it, this thing was basically almost completely intact on the ground. And talking about the flatbed tractor trailer, well, I'll give you a little information on that. It was in 1990. Before we did the Unsolved Mysteries TV show, 
before that was aired, a man approached me, got to know him very well. His credentials were checked. We were able to verify certain information. He told me, he said, I was a member of the Air Police, the Air Force Police, that guarded the object that fell near Kecksburg. He said, I was a member of the security team at Lockbourne Air Force Base near Columbus, Ohio. And he said that they had been notified that this had been recovered in Pennsylvania that was coming into the base. So over the years, other people, independently of him, who totally didn't know each other, also confirmed and went to Lockbourne Air Force Base. And they brought it in during the early morning hours, so it's the next morning, December 10th, through an entrance not normally used. I was told that they backed the large military flatbed tractor trailer with the tarp object on it into a hangar. They set up a security perimeter around the hangar, and they were given the shoot-to-kill order to anybody approach that hangar without the proper clearance. Right. Now, this fellow told me he didn't stay on the team much longer, but he heard that the object and the truck only stayed there for a short time that continued on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And later, I was told by other individuals who saw it at the base exactly what building they took it to, and it was not Hangar 18. It was another facility. Firstly, I, I have some questions about that, about the aftermath, about where it went. But also, I wanted to ask you, Ron, what was the, the remainder of your experience like, you know, the, after that evening and, and going on? I don't know what your, at that point, what your seniority in the department was. My great-grandfather was a chief, by the way, uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was so funny. He retired, I believe, in the year I was born or the year before. So like 1969, right around this time, he was he had retired from the department. But when my great-grandmother died, and he never really talked a whole lot about the department, but when she died and there was a funeral, I don't know, maybe 30 guys showed up in full uniform, like their dress uniforms. Right. And one of them had told a story later about how when he first came into that gentleman's station and uh, he had said something to him because he'd heard of my great-grandfather and my great-grandfather just immediately dismissed him. It was that hazing kind of thing you were talking about. I mean, it was just like, uh, I'm not talking to you, rookie, kind of thing. <laughs> Which, And it's a funny thing, because my great-grandfather, to me, he was the guy who gave me like a $10 bill and a Coca-Cola every time I saw him. But <laughs> like, I know there's like a whole lot going on there in the department, the way that works as it should be. That's, what, that's part of what makes it all work. But I mean, for you, in terms of you embracing... <laughs> the idea that this was a UFO and it's setting up the store and all that and your in your position at that point. And how, how did that play out for you? And and how does, is the whole department supportive of the idea that yes, this happened and, and uh, we, we still don't know what it was. Well, I gotta, I gotta say yes to everything. Uh-huh. In 1975, when I got in the company, of course I'm a rookie, right? Right. So I got to go up through the ranks and finally they kind of, pushed me into being fire chief, which I did. And I was fire chief for like, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years. And then shortly after that, you know, after talking to a lot of my brother and sister firemen, I took an interest in maybe we can do something with this. You know, the story, it did happen. And maybe we can make some income for the fire department. So we started, I appointed me president and chairman of the UFO festival committee the company at this point was very supportive on everything we was doing to start this in fact one of the ladies auxiliary members designed the first logo that we put on the kecksburg ufo t-shirts right they just went out like wildfire so i thought no 
let's start something. So we we uh, started in the basement of the Kecksburg. In fact, it was one of the firemen. We bought his house and started the uh, Kecksburg EMS station. We moved it from the truck shed to this house, and that's where we started the Kecksburg EMS uh, facility. In the bottom of that house, I started the UFO store, and it was in a basement, and it got so big that I had to move out of there, and finally they uh, made me a, a spot in the social hall of the Kecksburg Fire Department. But, but I got to tell you, they were supportive the whole time that I started it. They've been supportive up to this this point in uh, our festival. People really want the information, and they are they believe that it did happen. I'm getting anywhere from two to five thousand people coming to our little town festival, three day festival uh, each year. Well, I'm going to come next year. <laughs> we'll well, we'll so. try to make it there. Yeah. Uh, well, Ron, I have a question for you. What was that night? like for you back then in 65 being a you know a, a kid of sort what was it like that evening and then the weeks that followed what was the feeling like in kecksburg and around the area well with you know of course some of the people i knew right because i was born and raised two miles from there so i knew the area like the back of my hand i mean we hunted through this area as, as kids so the people i talked to there wasn't a lot of negative it was just a lot of questions and you know what happened why was why was the military there to begin with and you know what went down and we tried to find out what was taken out at that time you know you didn't have the communications you have now so we didn't know what was taken out of the area there wasn't uh from my point of view from that point on as far as i was concerned, there was no negative content pointed towards me or anybody any one of us that was there I didn't see that. Did the military come back again, or once they cleared the area, were they done? Or, or Like I said, I wasn't involved at that point, so I don't know. I only knew what I seen that night. And I can give you some information on that. Okay. So you got to remember now, it's Thursday night. This is a major news story that's working through the night, so the next day it's making national and local news. And the next day, the official explanation already is, well, first of all, the report came out that, yes, there was a search, that the authorities continued the search around 2 o'clock in the morning. They found absolutely nothing. And the government report says that the indications are that people have been mistaken, nothing had fallen to the ground. They saw a bright meteor in the sky, and officially that's how the report is today in the Project Blue Book file. And so here's something that's real interesting. But there were many, many little details about this case that I never – took me years before I would publicly talk about them until I had enough independent verification. There's still some details today I've never released because I'm hoping to get more confirmation on. It might add some really interesting new aspects to the case as well. I'm not ready to talk about it yet. I need more confirmation. So a couple things would be, one, the flatbed tractor trailer. Well, many, many people saw that large military flatbed tractor trailer leave that area early next morning, probably around 1 o'clock in the morning. That's the one that apparently transported the object to Ohio. But what I found out over the years, and now I believe it's pretty well confirmed, there was not one. There were two military flatbed tractor trailers at the scene. One went out earlier during the evening with a lower, flatter load with a tarp on it. I understand it went to Pittsburgh. 
in that area. And the object was vertical with, with the uh, tarp over it, and that's the one that went to uh, Lockbourne Air Force Base. So there were actually two military flatbed tractor trailers at the scene. Ron had mentioned earlier, talked about somebody uh, that evening where soldiers reportedly aimed their weapons at him. Well, I talked to different people who told me exactly the same story. They were teenagers. They tried to sneak their way down into the woods that evening, and they were stopped at gunpoint by soldiers aiming their weapons at them. Where did that jurisdiction come from for armed soldiers to be on other people's private property and aiming their weapons at civilians. What was so important down there they didn't want people to see? What they didn't know was some of the locals had got down in there before the military arrived. Well, there's, I'm glad you brought up that second truck because I wanted to ask about that. You had a witness back in your original documentary talk about saying that whatever was on that other truck was smaller. He described it as being like the size of a couple of suitcases. So uh, is there any speculation about what that might have been? Obviously, the speculation about the larger cargo was that it was the craft itself. But what do we think might have been on this other truck that was smaller and went to the other location? Well, there's a lot of interesting stories that I've heard over the years. And I would say more, more, uh, not just stories, but some very detailed accounts from some people who are reluctant to even tell me. And this is just a part of gathering information. I don't have the answers, and I'm not saying that their speculation is, is true, but before I get into that, let me get back to another eyewitness account. Okay. There's many fascinating accounts of what happened uh, that night um, on the scene. There were a number of, of different stories from so many different people that uh, verified other people's accounts. But in the one case, one witness actually was on the scene that night. He was on that dirt road that farm road that night where a lot of the military activity was taking place. And while he's there, this large, unmarked truck pulls up. And he said, out of that truck was four men in what he called moon suits. And they took a device out of it, like a, like a box-shaped object, about four by five squares, I recall, like right. on a stretcher with stretcher handles. And they carried it down across the field, down towards the woods, down towards the ravine where the object fell. My understanding was there may have been two of these devices. They were too small to put the object in, so what were they going to put into those containers? Kind of interesting. In the last 20-some years, some independent people have talked to me, and very reluctantly, and they indicated that there may have been someone or something inside of the object. And for years and years and years, I, I, many years ago, I, I would hear rumors that there were bodies found at the scene, but there was never any confirmation. I never had any details at all to go by that. But on my documentary, I believe the one, the one you refer to is called Textbook of the Untold Story. And I believe yes. it's still available on Amazon. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. Right. We both we both saw it. It's on Amazon uh, for rent for uh, for two dollars or about uh, nine, I believe, if you want to purchase it digitally. Yeah, we'll have a link to it uh, in our show yes. notes for everybody. Sorry to back up a little bit. I believe the gentleman you're talking about is Bill Weaver, who was a teenager at the time. Oh, okay. Bill Weaver is the gentleman who actually saw the truck pull up. He was a teenager at the time. He was in his dad's car, and he heard over the radio that something had fallen over in the Kecksburg area, and he knew the area, and he found his way onto that dirt lane where different people found their way, and that's where there was some fire equipment, but a lot of military personnel Anyhow, that's when he saw that large uh, unmarked truck pull up. But at one point, a person came up out of the woods and told him other people to leave, and he kind of uh, 
didn't want to. He wanted to stand and see what was going on. And basically, they told him, if you don't leave, we're going to confiscate your car. And, of course, it wasn't his car, so he left pretty quickly. <laughs> but uh, that was interesting. So going back to the Unsolved Mysteries broadcast, after that's on, many, many people are calling us about information they had pertaining to the case. And one fellow contacted me. His name was Myron. And Myron said, the show you saw tonight, he said, I guess I'm allowed to talk about it now because it's on television. And I said, well, what are you talking about, Myron? He went into great detail. And I interviewed him numerous times. The late um, Glenn Stringfield, you might recall that name. He was yes. kind of considered the father of UFO crash retrievals. Yes. Uh, Len Stringfield, uh, for, who was from Ohio, and he did a lot of the investigation on, on that side pertaining to the case. And he went in and told me his story, which was very interesting. He worked for a large supply house in Ohio. And he said a Navy officer, and that's very interesting because one of the earliest witnesses involved in Kecksburg who, who called in to report that this thing had fallen near their home said that soon after reporting it, she got a call from a Navy officer, and she said specifically Navy, that don't tell anybody exactly where it came down. You know, we'll have people out there. But she was specific about it being Navy, which I thought was interesting. So here we have um, Myron telling us that a Navy officer came into the supply house to order a large supply of this special type of glazed engineering brick to be shipped to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And there was a, another truck driver involved who initially did not want to discuss it or talk about it. I went and interviewed him. Later, I interviewed him. And at some point, he finally did verify the story. And from what I recall, he took the first load of special engineering brick into Wright-Patterson with an escort, escorted him in. And when he got there that day, here's the military trailer with the object with the tarp over sitting outside this warehouse building. The next day, when he and Myron came back, the trailer's there with the tarp laying across the trailer, but the object's not there. And he and Myron have their load of bricks, and they're told, do your job, don't be looking around. Well, Myron was a curious type of guy. And he kept seeing these fellows in white coveralls with sidearms, and as I recall, periodically taking off their uh, gloves and boots and changing their outer clothing at times. And he was wondering what, what was going on. So when he didn't see anybody around this opening, his entrance to this building, he snuck over and he said he looked inside and up on scaffolding, there's ladders going up, and there's this large, again, metallic, acorn-shaped object with strange hieroglyphic markings on it. And apparently they're trying to get inside of this object and open this thing up. And apparently at one point, he was asking some questions of these guys. Apparently at one point they realized he did not have the clearance and he was told something along the line that, forget it, do not talk about what you saw, forget about what you've seen, but in 20 years this will all be public knowledge. If not, we're going to throw you in jail and throw away the key, something along that line. And so for years and years he kept it quiet. And so it was a fascinating story. But when I went to interview him, and this would have been about 1996, if I recall, he was in very poor health, and he said, I have something else to tell you I didn't tell you before, but I want to tell you now. And I believe that's because his health was not a real good situation. Unfortunately, he's passed away. And he said when he entered that building, it was relatively dark. There was like 
something like a parachute hanging down from the ceiling. The lighting was above it. It was like to conceal the object. There were ladders going up. And he said there was a, a workbench, a work table in there. And he said, I could see on the table. He said, I, was, I couldn't see it clearly. There was a small body on it. I believe he said around four and a half, five feet tall, somewhere estimated, with a white sheet over it. That's all he could see. And he said the left arm was hanging down, and all he could see were three digits, three fingers. And he was kind of a comedian. He said to me, he said, I couldn't understand how something like that could even unscrew a light bulb with only three fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he gave me some really interesting information, but, you know, I had nothing else to go on like that. Well, 2002, I believe it is, is when um, the Sci-Fi Channel, you know, publicly announces that they're going to um, – Organized, they're going to support this new organization called the Coalition of Freedom for Information that uh, investigative journalist Leslie Kane was directing, and they had chosen the Kecksburg case to do a, a very in-depth investigation on, and it was making a lot of local and national news. And because of that, quite a number of local people came forward to, to tell their stories that had not come forward before. But there was one in particular, a certain name that came up. And I kind of recognized it for many, many years before. See, I think at that time, probably 10, 12 years before that, this name came up of a person who allegedly was, was down in the woods hiding and watching the recovery operation. I contacted him, and he did not deny it. He just said he didn't want to get involved. And his family didn't want him involved, and that was it. So now, years later, here's his name again, and I contacted him immediately. And I went out to interview him. When I got there, I, he was very physically nervous, and he said, I'm sorry I called you to come out, but I've been thinking about this, and I'm still reluctant to talk about it. But we got friendly, and we started talking, and finally he said, well, I'll tell you some of my story. And we had uh, a number of interviews over a period of time. And I'm not going to go into great detail about this, but apparently I believe he had seen the object coming across the sky that afternoon, he knew that area well because he hunted down there, and he found his way out there that evening. It was getting dark. He had a flashlight, but he said he kept it off, and he found his way down into the air because he saw, like, this electrical arcing. I believe it was blue, maybe some other color of, like, electrical arcing coming from down in the wooded area. Well, that's interesting because other people had told me the same thing. For example, Bill Burleybush, I don't think we mentioned him. He was the second eyewitness we found. A year after we had uh, talked to Jim Romansky, where I got a lead that a local person had seen the object going across the sky, and apparently it came down into that wooded ravine, and Bill Bully Bush went down soon after it fell, and he saw, like, blue arcing down in the woods, like electrical arcing, and that's how he came across it. So anyhow, going back to this story, so this witness goes down into the woods, and he goes into great detail with me about how this thing is positioned, what it looks like, talks about the strange markings on it, and he said he begins to hide in the trees. There's a lot of trees down there because he began to hear voices, and first he sees some local people come in, which may have been some of the locals. And then he sees uh, what he believes were some of the volunteer firemen coming in. And soon after, he describes the military coming in. He had been in the military, and you recognize there was Army and Air Force down there. Also, he said something very interesting, and I always remember this. He said there was one 
person in particular, but I believe there was more than one, as I recall. He said there was a man down there, and he said he's dressed like a politician. I'm thinking, what's a politician doing down in the woods? I said, what do you mean by a politician? He said, well, he's dressed up fancy in a suit, in a dark suit with a fancy hat and a black tie, and he has a camera. And he's taking pictures of the broken trees. He's fascinated, he said, but look, I wasn't that close, but it looks like there's some kind of tracks on the ground. He said, I, I guess they're deer tracks. I don't know, but they're like from around the object. And he's taking pictures of the tracks and pictures of the object down in the woods. And he says, while he's watching, a high-ranking Army officer jumps onto the top of this object. And he said he has a long metal rod, something like a policeman's billy club. And he said, for whatever reason, he said, he struck the surface real hard. And at that point, I'm watching, he's talking to me, and his voice begins to quiver. He's very emotionally upset, and he said, I swear to God, sir, I swear to God, sir, there was something inside of that thing. And he said, a hatch opened. So there's dirt all around this thing. It's somebody better than go, but he said, a hatch opened from right to left, and he said, all I could see, he said, from where I was positioned, it looked like a long elastic arm. He said, it looked something like... Some of them, I don't remember, it was silly putty, something similar that his kids used to play with. And he said it was long and elastic. And he said, I can only see what it looked like three, I believe he said two digits. And he said, there had to be another hand because I, I, I heard the hatch open and then moments later I heard he hit metal on metal. And he said, at that moment, the officer started screaming, hurry up, hurry up, we don't have much time. And all these soldiers came over and they started digging around the object and he went into great detail at how they used this metal strapping and how they had to winch it over to the flatbed truck. Because you couldn't take the trucks right down to the site because of all the trees. So this was not far down into the woods from there, but they couldn't take the trucks right to the site. So his story is very interesting, not knowing about the other account. And there's a lot more detail I'm not going to go into right now. But there's other people who I've talked to over the years who are extremely reluctant to even talk about this. And I, and I know other people who know people who have told similar stories, but they won't talk to me or anybody else about it. So I'm not saying this thing is extraterrestrial. I don't know what they saw. I've said, uh, as a skeptic, is it possible there could have been a human inside and there could have been some type of accident where they, they were burnt or something? I don't know. I'm just speculating. I have no idea. But some of these people appear to be very credible. They had nothing to gain by it. And it just makes you wonder if there's more to the story than we know. You know what's interesting about that story to me, and that's crazy. I had not heard that part of that account. I mean, I, and I'm not sure if it's the same witness, but I did hear somewhere in the research, it might have been your work, about the uh, suggestion of the guy with the suit and uh, taking the pictures and everything like that. And I remember hearing about somebody jumping up on top of it, but I didn't hear that and having the metal rod, but not that they struck it. And what's fascinating to me about that is that that's what you do. And I learned this from a movie. I don't have any sophisticated military intelligence knowledge here, (laughs) but that's what you do in Hunt for Red October when they mate the uh, submersible up to the submarine. The only way to let the guys in the submarine know that you're outside because there's no windows is to bang on the submarine with a mallet. And that is apparently militarily accurate information. So that would imply that, like, if they knocked on this thing and then the door opened, and like you said, whether it was human or not, whatever it was, clearly had an arrangement with whoever was there not to get out until they knew the coast was clear or that a rescue had come of some kind, which implies cooperation between what was in the craft and what was outside of the craft, regardless of what world it came from. 
there are so many fascinating details out there that most people don't know about. There's a lot more to this, you know, and, and of course, you know, we talk about there are multitudes of theories out there from the time this happened up to recent years. And all these theories, are, they're very interesting, but nobody has any proof to confirm the theories. And many of the theories we can easily dismiss. Some are interesting, but they don't fit with what we know. There's so much information out there. You know, I have no doubt that something fell from the sky that afternoon and apparently was recovered by the military. What it was, I keep an open mind. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Doug Bell from Kansas City, and when I'm not enjoying barbecue, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Well, in regards to Myron's account, another interesting thing that comes up in the documentary are all the connections to the Nazi Bell story, Die Glocke. Because when we covered that story uh, a while ago, and this is something I, I, as we were talking here, I looked up the Wikipedia page for the Nazi belt and Die Glocke has totally been scrubbed and now branded a hoax where it had a very comprehensive page before. But in that, in the couple of years that uh, since we covered it, it has been cleaned up and totally apparently debunked, which I, I find very interesting. But one point about that story was that there was a report that at Wright Patterson, and it didn't mention as we came across it, anyone uh, claiming to have been the delivery person, but some delivery of these special ceramic glazed bricks were that was being delivered. Right. What you, right. Now we know that. But I mean, I'm talking about in the initial uh, investigations we did, this was just a report that there was a delivery. It didn't say who it was right. or what it was for, but it was at this hangar where the Nazi bell was reportedly being kept. Now we la learn later that perhaps this was Myron. And what he claimed was that the bricks were the same material as the outside of the building. And that what it sounds like to him, at least, and to myself, is that they were prepared to basically build a false wall to hide this thing behind so that if you were uh, on the inside of the hangar, you wouldn't be able to tell if that's where the actual out outer wall was or not. Yeah, and, and again, I've heard all these different accounts and stories. And the Glock, the Nazi belt, one of many, many theories have been proposed. I am no expert on the Nazi belt. I've talked to people over the years who said they knew, purely knew a lot about it. Got to remember, whatever this object was, it again, it appears to be relatively large for that period of time. It's moving relatively slowly. It's making change in direction along its path. There's no weld marks, no seams, no fuselage on it. And again, from what I've just heard about the bell, some of the research I've done, I have not seen any information 
that would connect the two. I mean, yeah. I've really never seen any information that really confirmed that the Nazi bell became a reality. We know it was some, a project that was being worked on. I've never seen any evidence it became a reality. But once again, I'll keep an open mind until we have some definitive evidence of whatever this thing was. I guess that begs the question, if, if Myron and this other driver, if they were delivering the materials to build a false wall, there be any possibility that it's still there at Wright-Patterson in the back of a hangar behind a false wall? I've heard many stories over the years from different people. No way to confirm it. I've heard it's still there. I heard it's been moved to another building. I've heard it's been moved to other bases. I have no way to know that. And Ron, I wanted to ask you, like in hindsight, looking back now on all these years and, and being interactive with it, what's your personal our opinion about this possibly being interstellar. I mean, do you think it's extraterrestrial or terrestrial? Well, uh, I guess my personal opinion is, if you remember back, like Stan said, uh, Kennedy vowed that we would not be behind in the space race. And if you remember the first shuttles that went up and landed in the ocean, what did they look like? Right, right. The space capsules, yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying that that's what it was, but I do believe, and after talking to so many people, that something did happen here in Gettysburg, and the military was here, and whatever they took out was very important, or they wouldn't have been here. We was all hoping that, you know, after 50 years, that the Freedom of Information Act would take care of some of this, but <laughs> it hasn't. Have, have requests been filed? about this? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of FOIA requests back in the 1980s, and other people did too. And then, of course, that major project that the Sci-Fi Channel did with Leslie Kane, I mean, that was a, a huge FOIA investigation with multitudes of searches. And, I mean, if people can still look online, and uh, Leslie Kane did a very, very detailed account. It was in the IUR Volume 30 Number one, October 2005, it was titled, 40 Years of Secrecy, NASA, the Military, and the 1965 Kexpert Crash. goes into great detail about this case. So that's still online. And at the end, with the conclusion of the, of the NASA lawsuit concerning the incident, that report is online, too. And it's fascinating because of what they didn't find, which is basically no really good data at all came up to give us any answers as to what this object was. And that's under a report called the Conclusion of the NASA Lawsuit Concerning the Kecksburg PA UFO Case of 1965. That, I believe, is still on the Internet as well. So that will give people a lot of very, very detailed information. But it was uh, in the mid-1980s uh, when the only document surfaced, and that document was the Project Blue Book report on Kecksburg. And interestingly, it's not listed under Kecksburg. It's listed under Acme, Pennsylvania. And the reason I believe it's listed under Acme is because I found out that some local residents who were involved in the incident, who lived within walking distance of where the object fell, had an Acme mailing address. So as Ron can tell you, that mail route goes the whole way from that area up through the mountain. So apparently they used Acme instead of Kecksburg. And uh, so I think that explains that, that part of the mystery. Yes, yeah, where I live right now, I'm in Mount Pleasant Township. But a stone's throw from my house is Acme, PA. Mm. So if you lived 
above where I live right now, you would be in Acme, where my address is in Mount Pleasant Township, Kecksburg, PA. And there were, there is people that I've talked to since then, like Stan, that were kids waiting on a bus, got off the bus, and seen this streak in the sky come down, and they still don't want to talk about it. Wow. But a lot of the witnesses didn't just, again, depending on their position in relation to where the object moved and passed. And, for example, you have the late Randy Overly. He was a great fellow. He's passed away. He was a youngster at the time. He was a town of Norvelt, right outside of Kecksburg. And he and his buddy were playing down that afternoon. And in the distance, they hear this loud hissing noise, and they see this object in the distance beginning to move in their direction. And Randy went into great detail, and he said this thing passed no more than 200 feet over top of his head. He said it looked like a big metallic acorn, but kind of grayish with like a haze around it and different color flames. And he said it was moving very slowly like a, a small aircraft on approach to an airport. And he watched it approach him, went right over top of his head, and moved out toward the mountains of Laurelville. And you have people all along those areas that all saw the same thing. It's just a fascinating story, whatever this was, and the way the government responded so quickly. And there's a lot of interesting little details, again, we haven't even gotten into. And years and years ago, I began to look for documents, local documents and information we had to try to confer, or look for information that I believe was out there. One of the things was, and this is something that I believe was the late Jim Mays, the assistant, first assistant chief at Kecksburg, told me, and Ron, I believe you remember this too, but one of the things that we were looking for was when the fire department sent out a truck or other equipment, there is a log, there's a, an incident log for everything, and they keep these records. And when they went to find the records for that date, for that month, the Kecksburg Fire Department, they found all the records of that time period were missing. Do you remember that, Ron? Yeah, we, uh, we've since looked through the truck shed trying to find information back in that era, and there's nothing available. So it was taken without you guys knowing. Well, I well, remember this. The it, chief told me years, I think, before I even knew Ron, that they had looked for that and those records were all missing. Since, you know, I've been involved in the, the company that long, during cleanup campaigns, we'd get up in the attic where some of the old stuff were there, and there is nothing in that time period for any incidents. And Stan's right. We have a truck sheet that we fill out on every incident, and, and you know, the archive method back in those days was put them in a cardboard box and store them in the attic. Right. That's what we did. I've went through hundreds of pages of stuff trying to find anything related to that time period there's nothing there and you've got to remember that the night this happened that was the small truck station that the military reportedly used as a, a temporary command post taking equipment and radios in that night that many people saw right so you you believe uh some authority basically just took everything with them uh to clean it up well we don't know but it seems very interesting uh, that yeah. those records are gone also, something else that I pursued for years. This story was covered on all the local news, including television. I remember seeing, I still remember some details in my head of watching one of the local news stations doing the black and white TV news story about Kecksburg. I remember that. And I tracked down some of the actual, back then, of course, everything was on film. It wasn't video. 
and I tracked down and interviewed the people who were involved with the news teams at the time and interviewed them. Some of those guys didn't even want to talk to me about it, about what they saw and experienced that night, but some of them did. And I believe all the Pittsburgh uh, TV shows did air that story. For years and years, over the years, I went back in requesting them to search their historical archives, and nobody been able to find any of the archival records of that news story from that day. I know it was a huge national story. That's interesting. Yeah, that which begs one of the questions, which is something I picked up from Kecksburg, The Untold Story. You had a witness on there, Ron Asbury, who was the operations manager at the local station, and he had said that ABC New York had contacted them and wanted the story killed. Uh, any more reporting on it. The question becomes, uh, you, we know when one of the big three networks is saying, hey, we got to stop covering this, who called them and why? Yeah, And well, I wish I had more information. That's something that he had just brought up, uh, surprisingly, and um, I have no other information on that. It's interesting to think about. Uh, one thing that I wanted to add, you know, during, and I can't tell you the specific date, but during the uh, time period after I met Stan and got involved with the uh, our UFO store. So I had heard that Reader's Digest did a article on the Kexburn incident. So I emailed them and I called them and they wanted to know the specific time and date, which I gave them as far as I could tell, you know, what that would be. And they never did come back to me with a yes or no, whether they covered that story or not. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Which I <laughs> thought was, uh, very interesting because most of the uh, local newspapers around here covered it, like Greensburg. And I believe also there was an article in Mount Pleasant Journal, wasn't there, Stan? Yes, there was. In fact, that's something I wanted to bring up earlier when we had talked about something pertaining to this particular area. And I think it was that once they left that night, was at the end of the story from the military officials on the scene that night. Well, over many years, different people told me that the next day, so it was the next day, it's Friday morning, it wasn't the numbers of personnel that was there the night before, but there were still men in, like, moon suits. There were other, uh, apparently, military and other personnel down in the woods the next day. One of the larger papers in their story confirmed that early the next morning, their searchers are back to the site again, but also other stories breaking that they are saying it's already explained as a meteor, nothing was there, that was the end of the search, yet they're back the next day. And that local paper that you're talking about, which is a weekly the Mount Pleasant Journal, they also confirmed the fact that there were searchers uh, still um, there at dawn the next morning, and that by that evening, the area had been thoroughly scoured by police, military authorities, scientists with Geiger counters, other volunteers. So that was still going on the next day after they had officially already said there was nothing to it. So that's very interesting in itself. Again, in Kecksburg, The Untold Story, you had uh, William G. Everett, who was an ophthalmologist, I guess, talking about his mentor, Dr. McCaslin, which I, I don't think I've ever said this on the air, but that's actually my grandmother on my father's <laughs> side. That's her maiden name. Wait, they're not related, related are they? No, nah, I don't know. I haven't checked. Um, uh, but there was the story about Dr. McCaslin talking about the young man who came in with his corneas were burnt or uh, disfigured in a way that they were whitened and that he had never seen that in his career. Neither one of them had. Have you ever been able to track that boy down or any other stories that uh, might relate to that particular? No, we, we heard those stories. We heard rumors of other something else similar with young kids, but 
never were able to track those stories down. I can tell you that doctor was very, very credible. He was very well known in the Pittsburgh area. Both of them apparently were. But Dr. Everett, I got to know him very well. Uh, he gave a detailed account on the documentary. And from what I recall, he said was that the Air Force officers brought him in, that this was related to the incident at Kecksburg, and the Air Force officers told the doctor, whoever, uh, I get the doctor there, not to write up anything in writing about the incident. There shouldn't be any record of it, from what I recall. Interesting. Do you think that that injury may have happened, uh, and that's often reported, something like a... Uh, actinic conjunctivitis where you, you look at a welder's a very bright light or a welder's arc and you'll get some uh, inflammation but do you think that injury was caused by seeing the object up close maybe it after it crashed right right away or as it came down i can't speculate on it because there's no way we have enough information to confirm that but right. i was told over the years by different neighbors different relatives of people that among some of the locals that went down soon after it fell were, were, were younger people. But I can't confirm that that's connected to that report. Right, right. Well, well speaking of uh, missing information and people not wanting to come forward after being warned, one thing that really stands out in this case uh, for everyone, I think, is the, the story of WHIB news reporter, radio news reporter, John Murphy. And what happened to him? Because you you got to know him, didn't you, Stan? And and also we're waiting for an original copy of his doc, radio documentary that suddenly went missing. Yeah, I, I did not know him very well. I did interview many people who did know him very well over the years and worked with him and people close to him and his former wife, uh, the wife at the time. It was WHJB, was a local radio station here in town. He was a news director. As I recall... John was out on another news story that afternoon. He got a radio call from the station that go out to Route 30 East. There had been a report of some type of an explosion in the sky, and he headed out that way and didn't see anything. He went back to the station. It's uh, around the 6.30 news, which was one of the big news times back in that time period, and lots of calls. The phones are beginning to ring heavily with people calling in about this object that had gone across the sky, and... Um, I believe somebody else got that original call. They handed it to him. This was a person that said that their son had seen the object um, basically come across the sky and go down into the woods. And so John got all that information and said that he would be out shortly, and he called the state police troop A barracks in Greensburg and gave them all the information, and he headed out. He got there, I believe, about an hour before the state police fire marshal and another investigator arrived on the scene. What I was told was that, and, and I know that they were, that he was in radio contact uh, with his wife and with the people from the radio station at the time. And he never talked about this publicly, but apparently at some point he went down into the woods and reportedly saw the object, described it similar with the unusual shape, the hieroglyphic markings on it, and reportedly took pictures of it. But at some point, and he was back at the scene later that evening, when the military and other people started coming, he went back to the scene, that they had confiscated a roll of film, I believe they took out of his camera, but he had another roll in his pocket they didn't get. And I remember talking to at least, I believe it was two people who told me they saw the picture. One of them was Mabel Baker, or now Mabel Massa. She was the office manager, WHJB at the time. And 
been a long time since I remember some of these notes, but I believe right. he said it was a dark black and white picture. There was something like something clinical shaped. He couldn't remember real well in the thickly wooded area down there, but she remembers seeing the picture. That's the only time she saw it. Going back to, to John, he was there on the scene when the state police fire marshal and another investigator arrived on the scene. The boy and the mother and a small group of people were arrived at the same time. The fire, state police fire marshal and another investigator went down into the woods with a Geiger counter for 16 minutes. And when they came back out, the news director approached them and asked them, what did you find down there? And he said, I'm not sure. He pushed them again, and the, the state police fire marshal responded, you better get your information from the Army. And he thought, well, that's unusual. Like, you're looking for a fire, maybe a plane crash, and it seems like there must be some of your military interest down there. So anyhow... He contacted the state police barracks at Greensburg and was told to come into the barracks that they were awaiting the arrival of some members from the 662nd Radar Squadron in Pittsburgh who was going to look into the case. And he immediately left from there, went to the Greensburg barracks, and he said he saw both Army and Air Force personnel in the small room. He approached the captain, the state police captain, and basically was told that they had already looked into it, and there was absolutely nothing down there in the woods. But while he's there, he's hearing talk that somebody was seeing blue lights, blue arcing lights down the woods, and these this small group of military wanted to go out and see what it was. So he heard they were going out, and he asked the fire marshal if he could go along, go back out to the scene. Well, apparently, again, they didn't know he had already been there. And he followed them out, and when he got out to the area, they stopped the cars. The military people and the fire marshal went into the woods, but they refused to let the news reporter back in there. So that's another part of the story. And then, of course, later on, this became John Murphy's biggest story. And many people knew him. He worked day and night on this. He had a little notebook, and he kept all the records in. He did interviews with people. And uh, he was putting together a special radio broadcast on this called Object in the Woods, which was later broadcast in a censored fashion. And prior to that airing, and this was confirmed by people I talked to at the radio station from the manager, some of the other people worked there who were there that day, that these men in, in dark suits, I believe, came in, asked to speak to John Murphy. They went into one of the studios and shut the door. They were in there for a while. And when they came out and they left, apparently John was very shook up and very upset. And he had told uh, one of the managers that they had confiscated uh, some of the voice interviews he did with witnesses. And uh, later again, it was broadcast uh, in a censored fashion. And soon after, or somewhere around that time, he suddenly just didn't want to talk about it anymore. It was his biggest story, and he just didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to discuss it, and he lost his interest in it. And people around him thought it was very unusual. And uh, then, of course, stories went on over the years. I had talked to John probably two or three weeks before his accident when he was in California. I believe it was in February in 1969. And I'm not going to get a lot of detail about this. I've never seen any connection between the two. My understanding was that he was on vacation. It was at nighttime. He was crossing a busy highway to go over and look at the ocean, and he was hit by a car. And I've never seen any indication there was anything other involved in that. When I had talked to him a few weeks before, he apparently had no interest in the case. He wasn't pursuing anything, and uh, that was it.
Yeah, that was in Santa Barbara. So I, I guess you felt like that might be a little bit of a leap to connect that the accident and, and what he had been researching because he'd already let go of it and moved on then. That's my understanding, yes. Yeah. Uh, but his ex-wife, Bonnie Millslagle, seemed to, in the documentary, think that, that it, things didn't add up for her. It, it was uh, many years later, but that, to her mind, some connection there with what had happened. And But the question I want to ask you is, I believe the office manager that he worked with at the radio station said that uh, he had told her that there was a roll of film that the government did not confiscate and that was out there somewhere. Have you ever heard anything about that roll of film? Yeah, that's the one I had mentioned where apparently he had a roll of film and it was developed. It was black and white. And that's right. the picture that uh, I believe was two people I talked to. With the, I know Mabel Manson said she saw right. it. That's right. where she saw ah. the picture he showed her of the object in that heavily wooded area down in the woods. But she didn't see it real well. And she didn't remember a lot of detail about it. But apparently that was the picture. And again, all the pictures, his little notebook, all his notes and all that stuff, all apparently it wasn't seen again around the house, around uh, the station, uh, at the point where he didn't want to discuss it anymore. Right. What do you think happened to that copy of the original broadcast that was supposed to go to your possession here from John? Uh, what's the story with that? I, I really have no idea. I looked for years and years for it, and I had all my other tapes around that time. I have no idea. I, I thought I kept it in my one area where I kept this up so many years ago. Right. You know, I have no idea well, if it could have been misplaced, which is very unusual for me to think it was misplaced, but uh, I'm not sure what happened to it. Well, before we transition here to the larger scope of what was happening with all the high strangeness around Kecksburg and uh, the general region around the time, there's one final question I want to ask you regarding at least the specifics of this case. And that was a really interesting interview with Clifford Stone where he said while he was in the army, he actually saw a government military document, which the, the, the one word that I underlined here and, and, and highlighted was that in the report, the military said this object was not earthly. Uh, what are your comments about that? Well, I, I haven't talked to Clifford for years, but for quite a period of time, we were in touch uh, quite often back, probably back in the 1980s. And he provided some very interesting uh, documents and other information supporting certain things, not pertaining to Kecksburg as such, but just right. some of the information dealing with what he claimed that he was involved with. So that was fascinating. Years ago, I happened to run, just by sheer luck being in the right place, happened to meet another person who was also had been in the military. And somehow, I don't know how we got, because I understood this and learned about it, I just happened to bring up the case and that person indicated to me that he had also been in a position to see a similar recovery report from Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania in 1965. And as I recall, there was some indication there that this thing may also have been something not man-made. But um, it was very interesting. person didn't want to give me a lot of information about it. I believe he was probably telling me the truth. But once again... There's no way I can confirm that, but it was interesting because of what Clifford later told me. Right. So Stan, back in 2015, you did a debate online on a podcast called podcastufo.com. Uh, this ran on uh, December 23rd, 2015. It was a debate with John Ventry about the Kecksburg incident. And one of the things you mentioned on that show was that you had recently been on Coast to Coast and that a caller had called in and suggested that he was part of the military present 
the night of the crash, and you said you were still working on uh, following up with him. Do you have any more information about that since that was a couple of years ago now? There was a lot of interesting information on there. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail right now. In fact, I don't, I don't have my notes anywhere near here. There's okay, some that's okay. Away. But it, it was right. interesting because, I mean, he had already talked a lot on Coast to Coast that night, and a lot of what he said, I mean, it just hit right directly on what I already know. And okay. he was able to confirm a lot of interesting information I already gotten from other sources. So I believe he was very legitimate. So okay, so if we can we can find that uh, that episode of Coast to Coast, or our listeners can, and they can, uh, and you can at least verify that for you, you found that gentleman to be a credible witness. Yes, I did. So Ron, we're going to keep staying on for a little while longer and bleed that over into next week's episode. But we wanted to go ahead and let you go, but not without thanking you so much for coming on and telling your side of the story. It's a real treat for our listeners, and we appreciate you giving us this opportunity to get it on the record. It's been great to talk to another witness who was actually there. It's just been so valuable. Um, I did want to ask you, because I know that festival must generate a lot of income uh, for the fire department and for Kecksburg as well, and I, I really want to come to it myself. I'm hoping that maybe for and I can come next year. But obviously, it's been canceled this year due to the coronavirus. Are there other ways that maybe our listeners could support the fire department this year in the absence of the festival? Yes, uh, we are uh, canceled for this year. In fact, we already have. But it is right. scheduled for July 23rd, 24th, 25th next year, 2021. And it'll be the, the same menu. We will have... Uh, you know, we, we kick it off with uh, Half Price Night, which is a Friday night, on our foods in our uh, fire department-run uh, kitchen. And we have one of the only bed races in Westmoreland County, probably <laughs> the state. And it just is hilarious. I mean, uh, <laughs> what we do is we ask you, if you want to bring your own bed, that's fine. And we'll give you $100 up front. If you build a bed and it comes in and we certify that it's safe to run, we'll let you run it and compete. And you'll win a hundred bucks if you compete and win the event. And it's a timed event. So there's four pushers and one body laying in the bed. And it's just fantastic. It draws a crowd. People come with their cameras and movie guys come just to, just to get a picture of these guys <laughs> racing this bed. We would love to show up next year and and uh, take it all in and and meet you and and uh, some of the townspeople and 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 it's one of the great things about places that have experienced something kind of strange where they embrace it and turn it into something fun and generate some income for the locals in the region. So we we would definitely hit it if we're available. Yeah, and to answer your question, you go to our website www.kexburgvfd.com. You can look what we have right now. Right now, we're updating the the website to update our our product. But it's just a a hometown community fair festival where relatives of the people that live in the town come from all over the state, out of state, from Tennessee, from Texas, from Florida. They call up and they ask me for places to camp, trailer sites in the area. And I'll give them that information. And it has really blossomed for us the last uh, four or five years. It's been fantastic. I got 60 plus vendors that support us. We put out an annual uh, book for the festival, which lists all the vendors. 
And that not only supports them, but it supports us. And the people in the community have backed me 120%. I mean, I've had terrific response. People donate money for fireworks. People donating money for uh, our parades and stuff that we have. So uh, the support's there. And the reason we canceled it was we didn't want to take a chance that this year would be a a down year because of the darn coronavirus. So we felt that, you know, we didn't want to let that as an impression in their mind's eye for next year. That's one of the main reasons we canceled. So, uh, and they're very supportive of that right now. As you know, everything's shut down. We have call in take out orders only, and we're, we're really hurting financially because we're volunteer. So uh, anything, any support that we can get really helps us right now because it's tough times, but we'll be there. (laughs) We don't doubt it. I appreciate the uh, interview. It was fun. And I hope to see you next year. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yes. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Okay, Stan, if you'll stay on the line for a minute, we're going to keep going and work that into next week's show. But now would be a perfect time to let our listeners know where they can find your stuff online. Yeah, thank you. And if people want to go to my website, it's stangordon.info. My three books are available on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com as well. Great. There you go, folks. Uh, Stan, we'll have links to all of that in our show notes. Uh, Before we sign off for tonight, though... Forrest and I had a discussion after we recorded this interview, and uh, we actually reached back out to Ron to see if he thought it would be a good idea for us to try and help out the Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department this year, since they had to cancel the UFO Festival for 2020. Ron had originally said they'd been planning to make a shirt when we first interviewed him, even though there was no festival, but they wound up being unable to follow through on that. And we thought that since we already had a pipeline for merch, we would reach out to our graphic artist, Tommy Beaver, as well as our merchandise fulfillment folks at Abnormal Allies, and see if they would all be on board with designing a special shirt and selling it through our store with all profits going to the Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department to help them out this year. And because everyone we work with is so cool, of course, they all said yes. So uh, we only just got this together this week as this episode is dropping, but the Astonishing Merch Machine is screaming to life as I speak. And as soon as the shirt is up and available in our store, we're going to let you guys know. That way you can not only get a cool new t-shirt about one of the most famous UFO crashes in the world and their annual UFO festival, you can help support the volunteer fire department that holds that festival every year. So we'll let you know when those are up. In the meanwhile, we're knocking off for tonight, but man, does Stan have a lot more to say about high strangeness in the Chestnut Ridge area, which if you're a fan of our friend Seth Breedlove and his production company, Small Town Monsters, Chestnut Ridge may ring a frightening bell in your head. Next week, Stan will be back to talk about about all of that. Until then. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series with Stan Gordon. We'll be back next week with a more in-depth discussion on ancillary events in Pennsylvania that the more you look at them, the more they seem connected with Kecksburg. A very special thanks to both Stan Gordon and Ron Struble. Please remember to visit KexpertVFD.com and the UFO store there to help support their volunteer fire department. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Karina. Hi. Hi. I'm Olivia. I'm Doug Bell. 
a future or present compensation. I understand this is with no implied promise. Galaxy went perpetuity. Try that again. One, two, three. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks yeah, to thank the you. Astonishing people Research want to go to my website, But most importantly, we want to thank info. you, our listeners. My three Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other well. listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.